This is Rachel Fields and Sam Swartz with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Wisconsin Senator Tammy Baldwin and Wisconsin Representative Mark Pocan both signed onto an open letter delivered to President Biden today calling on him to do more for rail workers. The letter comes after a negotiated rail labor agreement facilitated by the president that was put in place to avoid a rail strike that could have debilitated United States logistical systems. However, a filibuster in the Senate blocked part of the negotiation that would have guaranteed rail rail workers paid sick leave, a key part of their labor demands. The letter calls on President Biden to use his executive powers to reinstate that part of the agreement, emphasizing the cruel and dangerous workplace conditions for railway workers if sick leave is not guaranteed. The state's Department of Health Services Secretary-designee Karen Timberlake will step down from her post at the start of January. Timberlake joined the state health department in January 2021 in the middle of the COVID pandemic, just as COVID vaccines were becoming widely available. She had previously served as the DHS secretary under former Governor Jim Doyle in 2009. Timberlake is the second person from Governor Tony Evers' cabinet who will not be returning for his second term. Preston Cole, who served as the secretary for the Department of Natural Resources, retired last month, according to Wisconsin Public Radio. Timberlake's last day is January 2nd, the end of Governor Evers' current term. The nonprofit Center for Tech and Civic Life has announced that they will be renewing their local election grants for the next five years, Channel 3000 reports. The group came under fire following the 2020 presidential election after Republicans accused donors to the organization Mark Zuckerberg of using the money to tip the election in favor of Democrats. Instead, the money was used here in Madison to fund get-out-the-vote efforts and to provide PPE to election workers. The state Supreme Court eventually ruled that there was no wrongdoing by Wisconsin cities in accepting the funds. Over the next five years, the group will give away nearly $80 million to counties and municipalities across the country, including here in Madison. While the money has no restrictions on how it can be spent, election officials across the country say that they intend to use it to build larger office spaces for election workers and to improve websites to recruit new poll workers. Madison's Lakeview Library on Sherman Avenue closed today due to power outages. It is uncertain whether the branch will be able to open tomorrow and patrons should check online or call before making the trip. Patrons may also use the LinkCat website to place holds or renew items. And now on to today's top stories. On its surface, Madison's Plan Commission and Landmarks Commission exist at opposite ends of the spectrum. One decides what Madison's future will look like, and the other preserves its past. But the two commissions often work in tandem, especially when it comes to deciding whether or not to demolish a building. Last week, the two met for a special meeting to hash out their relationship and figure out just how much they actually need to collaborate with each other. WORT producer Nate Weggehout has more. The city's plan commission met for a special meeting last Thursday with the city's landmarks commission to untangle how the two commissions communicate with each other. The plan commission is in charge of, broadly speaking, deciding what buildings get built in Madison. The landmarks commission, meanwhile, decides which historic neighborhoods, landmarks, and buildings to preserve. 
That means that the two city committees are often at odds with each other, weighing the needs of a city growing with preserving its past. Those competing values flare up over new developments, whether a new building would fit the character of a historic neighborhood or if a building has enough historic value to the city to be saved from being torn down. The meeting last Thursday was meant to clarify the relationship between the two commissions when a building is on the chopping block. It also sought to sort out the authority of the Landmarks Commission when deciding the fate of a building up for demolition. When a developer submits a building for demolition, the Plan Commission will send the plans to the Landmark Commission, where they will rate a building's historic value. But just because the Landmarks Commission deems a building to have historic value, that doesn't necessarily mean that the Plan Commission won't block the demolition. Plan Commission Chair Liddell Zellers says that she made a list of demolition projects from 2018 to the present that were deemed historically significant by the Landmarks Commission. And there were about 16 buildings that were red light. And one um, of those requests for demolition, Plan Commission denied, and it was overridden by the Common Council. Eleven were approved by the plan commission for demolition. Two were withdrawn by the applicant and then two were mitigation, so to speak. So the vast majority of what comes to the plan commission as being significant, the level C, the plan commission approves for demolition. If most of the demolition permits go through the plan commission, regardless of what designation the buildings receive from the Landmarks Commission, then why ask at all? Several members of the plan commission pointed to a project earlier this year on East Dayton Street, where an old warehouse was proposed to be demolished for a new hotel. After first being deemed historic by the Landmarks Commission, the developer then went to change their building plans in order to keep the historic nature of the building alive while allowing them to use the building for its new use. That plan commissioner member, Bradley Cantrell, is what it should look like when the two groups work in tandem. That project, I think, is one of the best ones I've seen in a long time because it shows how landmarks and the plan commission and staff really work together to make something really good. Even though it may be a C to a C, but in my opinion, it was an A. It ended up to be an A because it preserved the building much like it looks right now. Last Thursday's meeting was just a roundtable discussion between the two committees and will not lead to any immediate committee or ordinance change. Alder Eric Paulson, who sits on the plan commission, says that the meeting was to clarify and strengthen the relationship between the two committees. The Landmarks Commission wants to make sure that the plan commission knows that they, the Landmarks Commission is, is there and available to, to help give additional feedback where we think it might be appropriate. Paulson says that one thing that last Thursday's meeting was not about is to look for ways to prevent future demolitions, but for the plan commission to learn what is historically significant when deciding which buildings should be demolished. The Plan Commission is meeting right now for a virtual meeting where, among other things, they will discuss six demolition permits. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. The Madison Roller Derby roared back for their first bout since February 2020 last Saturday night. Plagued by the pandemic and the loss of their practice rink, this return heralded a new era for the group. However, some uncertainty remains. WORT's Christopher Cartwright has the story. Madison Roller Derby, founded in 2004, returned for several hours of cheers, beers, and multicolored costumes on Saturday night. 
Around 500 people turned out to watch the skaters whip around the flat track at the Kiva Sports Center in Middleton, many of them attending their first match. The Unholy Rollers faced off against the Vaudeville Vixens, with player names heavily relying upon puns. Emily Mills, a 10-year member of the Derby who goes by the name Hammer Abbey, gave a quick rundown of the sport. It's sort of like, we like to say it's like NASCAR and hockey kind of rolled into one because we're going in the one direction like NASCAR would, and there's a lot of hitting. Uh, but essentially you've got 10 people on the track at any given time, five people from each team, and on each team you've got one person who's called the jammer, they score points, the other four are called blockers, and they go head-to-head -head with the other four blockers and jammer. And basically you score points by lapping members of the opposing team. That one jammer can do that, none of the blockers can. And we go for two minutes or until one of the jammer calls off the jam, is what we call it. So like kind of the little, it's like a down in football, right? Um, and it goes for two halves, two 30-minute halves. And so at the end, whoever has the most points wins. How did Madison Roller Derby get started? What's the history behind it? So MRD has a long and glorious history, I'll say. <laughs> we started in 2004. We were the fifth league in the world to form when Modern Roller Derby came to be. It started in Austin, Texas around 2000-2001. Um, and it just so happened that one of the founding members with the Austin League was sisters with a woman who lived in Madison, who went by the name Cracker Jack, who was like, you don't get to have all the fun. We're going to start a league in Madison, too. So, uh, so Madison got in like on the ground floor. Then March 2020 rolled around and Madison Roller Derby came to a screeching halt. So the pandemic's been difficult for Roller Derby World generally. Um, there have definitely been some leagues that unfortunately had to fold because they, you know, it's, it's all volunteer run. There's shoestring budgets everywhere and a lot of places lost their, their practice spaces um, just as venues become more expensive, gentrification, everything else happens. Um, in Madison, we were really, really, really fortunate to have had a really big league. Um, we had, I think, the second largest number of volunteers of any league in the world going into the pandemic. Um, so just crazy fortunate to have a lot of people who support the league. And so, you know, lots of people have had to move on or had their life change during the pandemic. So we have fewer people now. We have brought in new skaters in the meantime, um, and that's definitely helped to sort of rebuild. But it's been, you know, there's been a struggle because we couldn't skate for a long time. And then we had to be really careful about skating. And we had some pretty strict rules about, you know, um, safety around not catching COVID. Um, and so we've been piecing it back together. And a lot of our skaters and non-skating volunteers have been working really, really hard to create um, a safe return to Derby, sort of a, a practice uh uh, plan that allows people to kind of ease back in and get back into shape and remember what this is all about. Not only that, but a long boiling trend finally caught up to Dane County, the closure of roller skating rinks. It's a really interesting challenge, you know, if you look at the trajectory of roller rinks in the United States over the last 50 plus years, they have been systematically closed. And that is something that has definitely affected um, communities of culture more than us really as a, as a roller derby league that is primarily very privileged and white. That's Ali Gator, the executive director of Madison Roller Derby. Um, unfortunately, Fast Forward Skate Center is in a, um, an area that has you know, been planned for redevelopment for a while. Um, so we've had it on our radar that this was a possibility, and unfortunately, it's come. Um, so that 
the location has been sold to a developer. Uh, Fast Forward Skate Center, the last skate center and roller rink in Madison is getting torn down in early 2023. So we are planning to practice there through February, but pretty much in March, after March, we are going to be homeless for our practices. Uh, We are looking for space to be able to practice. We are um, looking for other options for practice and bouting. Ideally, we would love to have a space of our own that we could use for all of that instead of having to share it with other uh, sports and you know having other space constraints. So we're open to working with other um, nonprofits and other community organizations to try to make that happen. So the first team will be introducing tonight, skating out in the red, the Unholy Rollers. As the crowd spilled across the bleachers and floor, clutching pretzels and pizza, cheese curds and beer, a renewed hope emerged. Old fans and new ran around the arena as Alligator called plays from the announcer's corner, with the unholy rollers emerging victorious with 206 points to 163. And despite the trips and penalties and the brutal falls against the hardwood floor caused by players like One Hit Wanda and Smack and Cheese, competitors climbed back up, brushed themselves off, and continued their fight long into the night. Reporting from the rink for WORT News, I'm Christopher Cartwright. This past Friday, the Madison area got more than five inches of snow, and among services affected by the snowstorm was the city's bus system, which saw several delays. But snow or shine, the show must go on, and Madison's public transit system operates throughout the winter. So what does it take to make sure that Madison's nearly 200 buses can operate properly? WORT's Antonio Barreras Lozano talked with Mike Roosh, Metro Transit's marketing and customer service manager, earlier today. Mick Roosh, thank you so much for speaking with me. Of course. My pleasure. So we got our first significant snowfall a couple of days ago on Friday. I was wondering what are some unique challenges that Metro Transit has to deal with as winter starts settling in? I will say one of the biggest things to get out there is uh, just that we do run slower when it's snowing like that. Um, It's slower. We have to slow down so that vehicles are safe. But we also slow down because uh, traffic in general is much slower. And so we can't really go around traffic that is, you know, stopped in the roadway. So we are kind of at the whim of how um, fast traffic is moving. So I would say that's one of the biggest challenges is just that for people to understand that we're going to be a little slower. Um, another one of the challenges are, you know, buses do get um, stuck in the, in the winter weather. So we just want people to be um, just mindful that it's uh, We will get them there as fast as we can, but drivers have to be careful and just some things happen along the way. We just want everyone to be uh, ready for that, ready for the unknown sometimes. And how does the bus system in Metro stay ahead of the winter weather and deal with these challenges that you mentioned, whether it is, you know, slower traffic or, you know, like maybe uh, more snowfall some days? 
Sure. Well, I guess one of the things is how we stay ahead of it is what is great is that our streets department, they salt um, our bus routes first. So that's really um, excellent. That helps us get a good head start and keep, an, uh, keep on top of the weather. Um, another thing is that we actually have, we put out, um, if you go to our webpage at mymetrobus.com slash, slash winter, you can see a bunch of different ways that you can track your bus and see where the buses are so that you can kind of plan and say, oh, it looks like they're going to be behind five, 10 minutes, that kind of thing. Or then when the snow really comes down, we could be down 20 minutes or so. But um, all of our buses have GPS, so you can follow along on these different apps and different uh, screens that we have available. Um, we can... You can also um, sign up for, we have rider alert emails and texts so that um, once it starts looking like buses are falling behind, we do send out a notice and we send out a text message or an email alert with links to the, that winter page and just kind of tells people, hey, heads up, uh, weather is getting a little, our, our buses are getting a little, little behind due to the weather, so uh, just please be ready for it. So those are ways to um, just kind of be ready for it. This website and the apps and the alerts, that's where people can find just general updates about the bus lines and how they're running, but also like if services have to stop? Yes, yes, absolutely. We will put that, if we have, we, I will say that uh, Metro really very infrequently stops service. It's uh, not, uh, we're always out there running, trying to get people, because we know, um, especially if uh, the snow comes at the end of the day, we're not going to just stop service um, because um, we know people have to get home. So we do everything we can to get everybody home in the evening. Um, so, but if we if it does look like that the weather is really coming down, we will put out a notice that, and it'll be on a text alert, rider alert. It'll be on every one of our web pages on a red alert bar that says Metro may be uh, stopping service early tonight, and we'll give people like at least a couple hours advance notice so that they can get uh, make arrangements to start start going home. But uh, that is very rare that we do anything like that. But um, that it has happened on occasion. And while we're on this topic of like, you know, stopping service, uh, when was the, and you're mentioning that it's very rare, but when was the last time Metro Transit shut down to, due to inclement weather? Oh, I, I don't have that date in front of me. I would say it wasn't last year, but maybe the year before or the year prior to that. Um, I would say it's once every five years if that, it has to be some really wintry weather for us to shut down. So it is very, very rare. <laughs> very, very rare. Yes, yep. it's not like once. It's not like uh, where you get an occasional snow day with with uh, you know school district type of thing where kids get uh, snow days. It's not like that. It's it's very, very rare. That's good to hear. Um, yep. And does Metro Transit rely on individuals to report issues with bus stubs or the lines themselves? Oh, that's actually a great question. Actually, on our winter page that I mentioned at mymetrobus.com slash winter, we have a button where you can request bus stop removal at stops. We do try to get out there, and we have crews that go out and clear stops to the best of their ability, but we have more than 2,000 stops out there right now, so we're not going to get to every place right away. So if you have a particular stop where the snow has not been removed, if you click on that button, it'll send a uh, send a form out and um, we will get somebody there to clear it as soon as we can. But that for a big snowstorm, it does take a while to get everything cleared. And, um, you know, from kneeling buses to paratransit, Metro has been committed to providing accessibility options. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but with snow-packed sidewalks and curbs and colder weather, uh, winter can make public transport harder to access. I was wondering how 
um, the bus system and metro help people with disabilities access buses or public transport uh, during snow-filled months of the year? Well, um, for paratransit, um, people that uh, we will send out notice of it. If it's getting really busy, we will send out notices, you know, encouraging people to maybe plan a trip on a different day. Um, we do have drivers uh, for paratransit. We do have door-to-door service where the drivers can go up to the first door and they can assist people um, from the first door to the vehicle. And as far as on our fixed route buses, yes, buses kneel and um uh, drivers are just drivers remain in their seats, but uh, you know everyone is just extra more extra careful. We're always, of course, very careful, but it's just everyone's very mindful of the weather and just giving a safe ride for everybody. And we have handrails too on the way up um, into the bus, and we just encourage people to use handrails and just be mindful that as people board the bus, um, the floor can get slippery because people are bringing in snow and. Um, Boots melt once you're inside the heat, so we just ask everyone to be extremely careful and use all the handrails and hand grips that they can when they get on the bus. Um, and on Friday, uh, just because the snow was the snowfall was really bad, uh, we noticed that some buses weren't pulling into the curb. Would this become an issue for people that have uh, limited mobility or have issues getting in the bus in the first place? It, um, you know, on a day like Friday, we just actually are out there just, you know, doing our best so that I would imagine that would be an issue for people. So we have, if people are having concerns like that, we encourage them. Our customer service reps are always available. So they should give us a call at 608-266-4466 if they're worried about accessing a stop and we can give them the next best possible way or next best possible place to board. As we're getting to the end of the interview here, uh, sure. I wanted to ask if there was anything else that you would like to add that we didn't get to talk about or that I didn't get to ask you about. Sure. I guess one other thing that comes to mind is that um, we generally, once the snow comes down, like on Friday, we start to avoid hills. So we ask people not to board on um, steep hills and to go find a flatter area on their route where they can board because we um, buses do... Uh, have a tendency to slide. So if the weather gets like it does on Friday, we do start. We started avoiding um, observatory drive hill uh, on Friday. So if you're boarding on a hill, we ask people to um, just find a flatter uh, roadway to board on um, during a snowstorm like that. We have been talking with Mick Rush from Metro Transit about how the bus system handles winter here in Madison. Thank you so much, Mick. You're welcome. Have a good day. The time now is 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz, here with my co-host, Rachel Fields. Thanks for joining us. It's Monday, which means that Forward Lookout host Brenda Conkle sits down with Dylan Brogan to break down all the meetings to come in Madison and Dane County. This week, rural marksmen head to the Dane County Board and city alders debate what's appropriate for their blogs ahead of the spring election. It's Monday, and that means we're speaking with Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com about what's happening this week in local government. Brenda, thanks for joining me today. Oh, no problem. So let's start with the Personnel and Finance Committee in Dane County. Uh, They have a pretty lengthy agenda, it looks like, but some routine items. But that meeting started at, at 530. So let's get caught up. 
Yeah, they had a ton of stuff on their agenda. Um, a couple of things people might be interested in. Um, they're increasing fees from um, on the for public health. They're also going to be getting some money for the Pheasant Branch Conservancy. And then they are also going to be working on some insurance type issues for the county, um, giving more money for the food pantries. Um, and then they will also be accepting some money for the Sheriff's Department for rural marksmanship equipment, as well as for, what is it, rural um, marksmanship. So not entirely sure what that stuff is about, but um, might be something people might want to be interested in. And then also they are doing the collective bargaining agreement with the Trades uh, Council. Well, let's go now to the Airport Commission. I know that uh, that looks like some routine items, though, but this is particularly important to people um on the north side of town just because of what's happening with the, the F-35s and noise abatement studies. So is there anything um, like that at the airport commission's agenda at 530 on Wednesday? Yeah, they have a couple, um, you know, routine items. But then, yeah, the two big ones are they're going to be looking at the noise study. They'll be getting an update on that about the public meeting, as well as looking at terminal expansion. And they're going to be taking a tour of um, the terminal expansion project. But it hasn't been built yet. No, I, I'm, I'm guessing it says tour, but I don't know if it's probably just showing them how things are going to change. Yeah. Yeah. All right, fine. We won't take things so literally. <laughs> um, showing them some sketches, maybe. All right. Well, uh, how about the big shebang this week for the county? It's the executive committee at 430 on Thursday and then a meeting of the full Dane County Board at 530. Uh, we still don't know what's going on with this jail, do we now? No, we don't. Um they will be um, looking at um, creating some subcommittees and changing the ordinance for how they create subcommittees at the executive committee. They're also going to be looking at, uh, at requesting the state to consider how real estate transfer fees um, end up getting shared with the local communities. And then they are looking at what kind of programs they're going to evaluate in 2023. Every year they pick a couple different programs in the county and they do a full evaluation of them. So They'll be looking at what they'll do there for 2023. At 5.30, the county board is going to be having a closed session meeting, and they're going to be doing some active shooter training. And then at 7 o'clock, the regular board will be meeting. Um, they do have lots of routine items on their agenda, lots of um, zoning items that, that may be of interest to folks if you live in rural Dane County. And then they are going to um, be incorporating the Dane County Farmland Preservation Plan into the comprehensive plan. So the folks who worked on that would probably be happy to see that happen. Um, a couple of ordinance changes around um, the creation of the subcommittees, just like is at the executive committee. Uh, a couple of grants that they'll be looking at, uh, again, for the food pantry and for the neighborly program, which is the rental assistance program um, that the county and city have been paying for. Um, and then they will have um, that same uh bargaining agreement with the trades council and then uh 2023 crop leases um approving those for 2023 um increasing those fees for the department of um public health again with that rural marksmanship equipment yeah well, um, very odd yeah in the meantime let's move on to the city of madison which the Landmarks Commission is already in progress. That started at 5.30, and they're talking about the old Fess Hotel. My mom used to work there back in the day, and it's kind of nice you get to see that when since they did the construction, you can kind of see, like, the original facade or something. So what, what's going on with that? Yeah, It's the, the Great Dane yeah. now, essentially. Yeah, the Great Dane. Um, so at 123 East Doty Street, they are looking at an addition to a designated Madison landmark. Um, and then they're going to be also looking at the transit-oriented development overlay district um originally 
historic districts had been exempt from it, and now I believe that they're adding them back in. So, well, um, what does that mean? An overlay district? Um, it's a you know, so the, there's zoning throughout the city of Madison, and then sometimes they have overlay districts, which would be like urban design districts or other districts that that then add additional rules to certain areas. And so there's going to be a transit-oriented development overlay district, which will be, you know, probably around um, bus rapid transit and and some of the transit nodes that we have throughout the city of Madison to encourage higher development, higher density development around those um, areas. And also in progress, a lot of Monday meetings is the 530 Plan Commission, uh, used to be formerly known as the Planning Commission, um, and they have a, a whole slew of projects that on their agenda tonight. You want to just go over maybe some highlights? Sure. So um, two things that are that are not projects, um, they're going to be um, agreeing to prepare the West Area Plan um, and then also doing the complete Green Streets policy. Um, so those two things are more policy-oriented. And then there are a ton of projects. Um, there's some annexations to the city of Madison. Um, there is a project at uh, 330 West Mifflin Street, as well as the 415 North Lake Street project. Those are probably two of the bigger ones. Um, there's also some projects on Tradesman Drive on Ross Street. That'll be probably draw a lot of attention as well. And then they have something on Fremont Street, Lake Mendota, Spruce Street, Cyan Road, Mineral Point Road, and a whole bunch of other ones, as well as they'll be looking at updating the city's floodplain maps and then changing land use approval extensions and expirations, which um, we, we seem to be seeing more of those lately. So I'm not sure what's going on there. And then yeah, what is that? I think it's because probably the finances for the developers, um, been a lot of um, just, you know, delays and getting things that you need to be able to do the developments. And then they'll also be looking at the transit-oriented uh, de- development overlay district. We do have a meeting of the Common Council Executive Committee at 5.30 on Tuesday. They'll be doing every uh, every quarter or so, the city attorney's office puts forth an ordinance that revises a bunch of uh, language that needs to be done, as sort of ordinance cleanup. So they'll be taking a look at that. They're also going to be talking about um, what the appropriate use of alder blogs is and what topics are allowed during elections. So that should be an interesting discussion. They'll also be talking about District 12 vacancy, um, and that's uh, Alder Syed had resigned. Um, And then they're gonna be talking about putting a binding referendum question on the ballot for alternating so that in even years we elect half the council and in odd years we elect half the council. And then they'll be getting some updates from the city council office staff. Yeah, alternating elections sounds pretty good. I mean, there would be um, like just half the alders, I don't know how they would choose them, um, would only have one-year terms and then have to run again, right? But that's just sort of how it is. I think they're going to do it. um, Even years would be the even-numbered districts and odd years would be the odd-numbered districts. So, you know, whenever this happens, it looks like they're shooting for 2025. um, And so then that would impact um, those alders in that kind of way. And Wednesday, um, Public Safety Review Committee meets virtually at 5 p.m. You're on that committee. And, hey, you're bringing back Julie Laundrie with the Madison Police Department to talk about records. Yes. Um, so We love it. Yes, they have a they do have a, um, a written policy, um, but they don't seem to follow the written policy all the time. So we're going to be asking some questions and, um, you know, also looking at how long it's been taking them to get a lot of the um, requests 
filled. Um, they have seen such a huge increase in requests. They really do need some more staff down there. Um, I don't think that they probably got what they needed in the budget. And then they'll, we'll also be looking at the emergency management plan for the city of Madison. Hey, the Mass Police Department's a little faster than the school district. So yeah, that's true. That is true. They can't. They they. Uh, I mean, it's a low bar, but uh, the Madison Police Department is certainly beating that one. So. Looking forward to speaking with you again about what's going on with local government moving forward. So thank you, Brenda, for your time. All right. See you next week. This Friday is the anniversary of the Great Bagel Famine in New York City in 1951. The trade union Bagel Bakers Local 338 had 300 workers strike, closing almost all of the bagel bakeries. The usual weekend consumption of over 1 million bagels dropped to nearly zero. Feature contributor Harvey Richardson has the story of the militant, successful struggle of these Jewish workers. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. This Friday, December 16th, is the anniversary of the start of the Great Bagel Famine in New York City in 1951. 300 members of Bagel Bakers 338 struck, closing 32 of the city's 34 bagel bakeries. The strike over wages and working conditions lasted six weeks. The workers won a mediated settlement that included a $3 a day wage increase. It was not the first Bagel Bakers union in New York just the most successful. As hundreds of thousands of Jewish people swept into New York before World War I, dozens of Jewish bakeries opened on the Lower East Side, mostly staffed by young Jewish men providing challa, rye bread, and bagels. Bagels, then, were made by hand without machines. An 1894 New York Press article described workplace conditions, wet, rotting floorboards, and an infestation of a great variety of insect life with roaches springing at a lively rate in the direction of the half-molded dough. Laws were passed, but inspectors didn't enforce them. The workers tried to organize to protect themselves, but early attempts failed. By 1900, there were 70 bagel bakeries on the Lower East Side. People worked under horrendous conditions. With ovens roaring, the bakers were drenched in sweat and soot in painstaking labor into prepping, mixing, and baking dough. Bakers were confined to 120-degree heat, insect-infested basements for 13 to 20 hours a day. In those cramped, sweltering conditions, they toiled and slept for seven days a week. Finally, in the 30s Depression, workers formed Local 338 as part of the Bakery and Confectionery Workers International. All 300 initial members were Yiddish speakers who descended from those early hardy bakers. Joining required family connections, but that wasn't enough. Only after three to six months of apprenticeship, once a benchman had obtained minimum rolling speed of 832 bagels an hour, could members' sons and nephews be grudgingly brought into the fold and given union cards. They were hardy macho types, fueled by homemade whiskey, sweet, strong coffee, and steaks seared black and brown by the heat of the bread ovens. You never spoke to the old-timers unless they spoke to you. You didn't approach them. One member told Maria Bolinska, author of The Bagel, The Surprising History of a Modest Bread, and they didn't look at you. Among themselves, they spoke Yiddish. 
Their first question to you in English usually was, who are you related to? By the 30s, bagels were acquiring a special place among Jewish Americans, and bakers grew wise to the value of their special skills. Within eight years, the union had contracts with 36 of the largest bakeries in the city and New Jersey. They had a fierce rep. Non-union bagel makers were few and far between, and the holdouts experienced threats and day and night picketing until they towed the line. In the multi-step bagel-making process, there was little margin for error. And so, as more and more Americans came to see bagels as intrinsic to Sunday breakfast, the bakers found themselves becoming irreplaceable with appropriately rigid negotiating positions. Without machinery to undercut them, bagel bakers commanded impressive salaries. They received the equivalent in today's money of around $65,000 a year, far more than policemen, engineers, or teachers were getting in 1960. They also had great benefits, dental, pensions, glasses, health, three weeks annual leave, 11 days of public and Jewish holidays, and they would never grow hungry. Each baker could take home 24 free bagels every day they worked. Bagel bakers renegotiated their contracts every year, and if they didn't get what they wanted, they struck. On December 16, 1951, 32 out of 34 bagel bakeries closed, leaving shelves bare and sending lock sales down by as much as 50%. Normally, the city's weekend bagel consumers ate 1.2 million bagels in a weekend. Now, there were nearly none. Shopkeepers substituted bagels with whatever they could, variously throwing seeded rolls and viales into the void, but nothing else would do. The strike was eventually resolved through the State Board of Mediation's Murray Nathan, who had reportedly helped settle the lock strike of 1947. The workers successfully struck again in 1957. The workers struck in 1962, again attaining all their demands, but it was their last hurrah. The union had managed to hold back technology for years, slowing the change to mass production. But they were eventually beaten, and in 1971, the union dissolved. But the workers had succeeded in making a good life for themselves and their families for generations, and a superior bagel. And that is our story for today. For the past and the past, I'm Harry Richardson. On January 2nd, Governor Tony Evers will be sworn into office for his second term leading the state of Wisconsin, and as soon as he's sworn in, budget season will officially kick off. This upcoming budget season, all eyes will be on the state's $6 billion budget surplus and what will be done with the money. Looking ahead at the upcoming budget season, 8 o'clock Buzz host Andy Moore and producer Beatrice Lawrence spoke with State Representative Francesca Hong of Madison to learn more about this year's hot budget issues. Representative Hong, I, good morning to you. I, I, I want to get uh, to shared revenue in a moment, and, and this might be part of that discussion, but the state is looking at an income surplus of over $6.5 billion. For elected officials at, at budget time, that's got to be like blood in the water for sharks. And talk about where all that revenue came from. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so that would be $6 billion. That is billion with a B. And so a lot of that revenue came over uh, tax revenues from different uh, city states and our communities. Um, but it's been building over the years as the state was thinking uh, that they would see lowered um, tax revenues. But a lot of it did come from the taxpayers. So it's incredibly important that with this upcoming uh, biotem budget that we invest back into the uh, communities and the priorities that are our communities are asking us to invest in. And for us, uh, especially here in the Madison area and across the state, we've been hearing from folks that they'd like fully funded public schools. Can you 
talk a little bit about why shared revenue to cities matters? So as a, as a state sits on an over $6 billion budget surplus, our cities and municipalities across the state have faced severe budget cuts and they're not able to fully fund important services like fire or EMS, uh, investments in mental health care, additional public safety programs that would help immensely in our communities. And so uh, especially cities like Madison and Milwaukee, who have often been demonized or weaponized uh, for taking from the state, it's actually been quite the opposite. And so cities Um, across the state have had to try to find additional sources of revenue while the state state is sitting on uh, a large amount of a surplus. And so it's incredibly important that we raise those shared revenue limits so that cities do not have to continue to squeeze out their budgets uh, to to provide these important services for our communities. Representative Hong, uh, Governor Evers vetoed nearly 150 Republican bills during his first term after last month's election. Republicans will not be able to override the governor's veto, as you know, still Republican majorities in the Assembly and Senate will, will send a Republican budget to the governor's desk. And what will that mean? Well, that will mean uh, we're hoping that both sides of the aisle will make uh, compromises and get into negotiations while prioritizing the needs and desires and the values that Wisconsinites have. Um, But ultimately, it will be in uh, the Joint Finance Committee where there is a 12 to 4 uh, Republican majority where a lot of these budget decisions will be made. And so they will uh, either strike um, or uh, partially strike a lot of the governor's budget recommendations and then send back a budget that comes out of the finance committee that the legislators agree upon. The the heavy lifting will be done in joint finance, just as you describe. But that's not where a lot of the negotiations will happen. It'll happen in caucus, as you know, and, and so forth. And last budget session, there was virtually no communication between the Republican leadership and the minority leadership during budget consideration. Is there any reason to think that that will be any different this time around? Um, you know, the, the the power and the decision-making power, a lot of it is in the Republican leadership, and it is up to them to and their staff to keep communication lines open with the minority leadership. But mm-hmm. my understanding right now is there have been conversations between our leadership, and we mm-hmm. anticipate that in joint finance those conversations will continue. And we have to also remember that there have been some signs that the uh, administration, who have been always open to communication from Republican leadership, Um, that there may be some additional conversations moving forward. But we also have quite a few uh, new members coming in to Mm -hmm. both caucuses. And so how leadership will adjust or include uh, those voices um, will also impact those conversations. How how, how do you strike that balance, um, Representative Hong, between a goal so important as fully funding schools and providing property tax relief, such as the Republicans will be trying to hammer through? Well, it's important to remember that our schools have not been fully funded for over the past 10 years. The, the, as costs have been rising and, and, um, you know, our f- schools are facing severe, uh, budget shortfalls. And so being fiscally responsible also includes government being a source of good and making sure that we're making investments in our communities so everybody's quality of life can improve. And so it would be fiscally irresponsible to not see fully funding schools as an investment that we need in order to have prosperous local economies across the state. And we're going to continue to see services suffer if we don't have as you mentioned before, increasing tax uh, levy limits, but also uh, Mm -hmm. 
ensuring that our schools are fully funded and that we're not relying on taxpayers and property taxes to fund our schools. Representative Francesca Hong, thanks for joining us on the Friday Buzz. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new movies on streaming services. First is I'm Totally Fine, a fun, if predictable, science fiction movie. Then, Emancipation is a moving story of an enslaved person's quest for freedom. Jennifer continues to remain deceased. I am simply an extraterrestrial who has taken her form. I think I'm going to go. Where will you go? To the hospital. And that was a clip from the trailer for I'm Totally Fine by first-time director Brandon Dermer from an Alicia Keatry screenplay. This is an enjoyable science fiction comedy that deals with a very real-world issue, the sudden loss of a best friend. The movie opens with Vanessa and a compelling Jillian Bell sobbing pulled over on the side of the road. Vanessa and her friend and business partner Jennifer, well played by Natalie Morales, had been planning a getaway to celebrate the success of their new business. Vanessa has decided to use the isolated rental house instead to quietly mourn her friend. But there are several problems. First, she forgot to cancel the caterer. Since the caterer refuses to let her cancel, she lets them set it up. Predictably, Vanessa ends up by the pool with too much champagne. She awakens to a world-class hangover and the sight of her best friend handing her a cup of coffee. She's appropriately freaked out, but Jennifer calmly explains she's not the real Jennifer, but an alien sent to Earth to study humans and report back home. She shows Vanessa a meant-to-be-helpful video. Vanessa at first refuses to believe her and thinks she's having a delusion or a nervous breakdown. Vanessa tests Jennifer by asking questions only Jennifer would know the answer to and is eventually convinced Jennifer is real and an alien, but this Jennifer knows nothing about emotions or human flesh. Jennifer is puzzled that a rational explanation doesn't suffice, but then says, look at it this way, you get to spend another 48 hours with your friend. Vanessa says, you should have led with that. Jennifer promptly makes a note on her recording device. Vanessa goes through a series of physical tests to satisfy Jennifer's assignment. This is a fairly predictable but enjoyable movie, mostly because of the chemistry between the two. All in all, a fun movie worth watching. It's showing on Voodoo. If you enjoy this film, you should check out The Superior Starman, 1984, starring Jeff Bridges and Karen Allen, that explores similar themes. Now for a serious movie on a story from the nation's dark past. I must get to my family five days from this one. That was a clip from the trailer for Emancipation by veteran director Antoine Fuqua. Fuqua is probably best known for directing Training Day. Most of his experience is in action movies, and it shows here. The story is about the self-emancipation of Peter, a man of deep faith devoted to his family and to freedom. The movie's makers claim inspiration from the infamous photo of Whipped Peter. The photo is deeply troubling, close-up of the formerly enslaved Peter's deeply scarred back, representing almost indescribable suffering and endurance. But not much is known about the real Peter, so most of the movie is made up. Also problematic is the curious display of the original photo by one of the film's producers, Joy McFarland, on the movie Red Carpet. He has faced a lot of criticism for that and has apologized for his actions. Speaking of apologies, Will Smith plays Peter, who we see in an opening touching scene with his family, his spouse, an underutilized Charmaine Bingya as Dodeen, and their three small children. He is callously dumped in a cage atop a wagon, 
with a group of enslaved men, they have been drafted to perform heavy labor on the Louisiana Confederate front lines. As Peter toils, he shows empathy toward his fellow prisoners, especially a young man who is falling behind on the job. He tries to protect and comfort him, but then Peter overhears that Lincoln has freed the slaves. He tells several of his fellows, Peter is forced to help remove a dead man's body, putting him into an open pit of bodies, one of the movie's many troubling scenes. But Peter sees it as his chance, throwing a shovel of talc at one guard and knocking out another. He then makes a hasty escape through the woods, joined by several others. Several men are immediately shot, and only Peter and two others remain. The rest of the story is the pursuit of these men by three slave catchers, led by a suitably evil facile Ben Foster. While some of the chase is a little overdone, I could have done without Peter wrestling an alligator, for instance. All in all, I found this to be a gripping film of human triumph over incredible brutality. Interestingly, it received only 49% rating on Rotten Tomatoes by critics, but a whopping 93% from the audience. Once again, I come down closer to the audience. While not as good as some films in this genre, like, say, 12 Years a Slave, it's still well worth checking out. It just started playing last Friday on Apple Plus. For WT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporters this evening were Antonio Borreras Lozano and Christopher Cartwright. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Andy Moore, and Beatrice Lawrence with the 8 o'clock buzz, Brenda Conkle and Dylan Brogan, and Nicholas Leet for technical production. The incredibly talented Nate Carlin not only wrote headlines for tonight, but also engineered tonight's show. Nate Weggehout produced this newscast, and Shally Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz. And I'm your host, Rachel fields stay up to date with the wort local news podcast subscribe on itunes podcast spotify and wherever else you get your podcasts up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial the access hour have a good night